Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother, Jonah. And we are so excited to have you hear the latest season of our nostalgia-themed podcast, How Did We Get Weird? Not only do you get to know me and my brother, you get to know the stories that made us the absolutely rad people we are today. Like you, Jonah, who's a music person and also a mental health counselor. And you, Vanessa, who is an actress, comedian, and I think you even wrote a children's book. Wow. I sure did. Check out our episodes where we've welcomed hilarious guests like our friend Andy Samberg. That's it. That's really it. And Queen Casey Wilson. I really went cart before the horse. I said, I think I have an opportunity to interview Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> As a high school student. Plus legendary sisters Amber Ruffin and Lacey Lamar. Top. You would pull the bag out and then we would eat okay. the eat all the leftover the leftover chocolate chips, which was a lot. Then you'd roll the barrel oh, up, so to, up the hill. And then one of us would get inside the barrel and they'd push you down. And we've also had an amazing guests like Mike the Miz, Jason Isbell, Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker of Slater Kinney, and many more. And you do not want to miss out on our funny segments like Change.Dork. <laughs> Change.Dork. And congratulations, you played yourself. Congratulations, you played yourself. Listen to our podcast, How Did We Get Weird, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Chelsea Handler, and if you listen to my podcast, Dear Chelsea, you know that I love making space for women to share their stories. And that is why I'm excited to be part of Women Take the Mic, iHeartRadio's celebration of women who make music, influence change, and create culture. All month long, your favorite voices from talk radio, music, and podcasting will highlight the remarkable achievements made by women and discuss the most significant issues facing us today. Search Women Take the Mic to listen to a collection of International Women's Day episodes from iHeart's top podcasts, including Angela Yee's Lip Service, The Psychology of Your 20s, and Dear Chelsea. It is a great way to support women and discover your new favorite show. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash Women's Day for more and listen to Women Take the Mic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. In January 2020, I was at the Sundance Film Festival and attended the premiere of The Dissident. The Dissident was directed by Brian Fogle, winner of the Best Documentary Oscar for his film Icarus. The Dissident recounts the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, a Saudi journalist who fled his home country after crackdowns on dissent in 2017. He lived in self-exile in the United States where he wrote columns for the Washington Post that were often critical of the Saudi government. The details of Khashoggi's demise are gruesome, to say the least. Turkish officials and the CIA have concluded that Khashoggi was killed and dismembered inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. The film follows the investigation into his murder, going so far as to implicate the highest ranks of the Saudi government, including Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Prior to the Sundance screening, I was introduced to a Turkish woman backstage. 
We spoke briefly before taking our seats in the theater. I did not catch her name. Only when the lights came up and Fogel called to the stage Khashoggi's fiance, a human rights activist who is prominent in the film, did I realize she was the woman I had the very hasty chat with backstage. My guest today is that woman, Hatija Jengiz. After the screening, Jengiz was descended upon by admirers, and thus the opportunity to speak with her again did not arise until today. With the opportunity to speak with Hatija once more, as she joined me from Turkey, I wanted to learn about her history with Khashoggi and how they first crossed paths. I met him in Istanbul in 2018. I knew him as an academic, as a writer, as a fellow in the Gulf Studies. And he's a well-known journalist in the Middle East or around the world. I was watching him when he gives interviews on the televisions. There is a no more very famous writer or journalist from Middle East. Jamal, one of the most popular and well-known person as a foreign policies and defending democracy and human rights and the other values that we are talking about. And he was a very, very open mind and different from others. But when I start follow him closely, it was at the beginning of the, the Arab Spring. I met him in the conference. It was May, I think. He talks about the Gulf countries, the situation about the crisis and, you know, human rights. And there is a lot of problems and issues that you cannot talk about the GCC countries very easily. So Jamal was out of Saudi Arabia at that time. He attended the conference from the States, but I wasn't aware all of the information very closely. You were not aware of his status with the Saudis, meaning when you met him in 2018, he already was in self-exile. He was villainized by them in 2017. So when you met him physically, when you first, he was in the thick of it. Yes, but I knew that he has moved to the United States, but I wasn't able to understand the whole these details. I expected that he moved for a time, for some period, because I couldn't understand how someone like Jamal left his country forever. You know, all this information I received afterwards from Jamal when relations start between us. I met him in the conference. And as a listener, I did not give any speech in that conference. And after the conference break time, I said, hello, I introduced myself. And I said, I am studied about Oman and I am interested in Gulf countries more than four years. And of, of course, we were talking in Arabic and he interested in the sort of these details that I know about the Gulf. It was like electricity between two people. It wasn't a conversation just between men and women. It was more than that, I can say. It was a very warm conversation. I'm quite surprised that men like Jamal was very humble to listen to people like me, a very young researcher, and he gave me a chance to introduce myself and to talk to him. And I told him, if you have some time, 
can I do like a short interview or talk with you more? And uh, he didn't reply. He didn't respond to the questions. So I said, it's okay. Uh, I, I shouldn't ask more than this. And I said, I will be around. And if you like to talk to me, I will be really happy. And then I left him. It was a break time for coffee or something. And then I, I started following the other sections and then talking with my friends and the other young journalists and researchers. And he came and said, hello, how are you? I want to talk to you if you have time. And then we start talk about his experience, the last moment that he had. I asked some questions and he replied. And he even allowed me to record this. So it was the beginning of my relation with Jamal. And we had a good conversation, like half an hour or 40 minutes. And then he said, very nice to meet you. He felt uh, very comfortable with me that he wants to talk about more. But what I'm wondering, though, is knowing as we do in the timeline that he was already, you know, in a lot of trouble with these people when he met you. Was he concerned when you came into his life? Was he concerned about you? And were you concerned about you? Did you think you might be in danger? Actually, I wasn't aware of all the, the danger of his life in that level. Even Jamal didn't knew that these people become like enemies to him, uh, try to put him in jail or arrest him. He didn't mention at all. You know, if you have a relation with someone like Jamal and that level, you cannot ask any question very easily. Do not hurt him. I was very careful to understand Jamal's feelings and emotions situation because he was really, really lonely that time. I was really careful to not ask any question that I want to ask. I just one time remember asking him, do you think that I have to know some sort of information or kind of things that I have to know now before the marriage? Because we were busy with buying home or some sort of things for, for house. In that period, I asked this question. And then he asked me, why you are asking this? And I said, because I do not want to getting surprised after the marriage that you didn't tell me something like the big issues in your life or if you have any points that you hide me. I don't know. I just asked the question. It seems that what you're saying is that neither one of you was really fully aware even he wasn't fully aware of the lengths these people were willing to go to get him. Yes, he did not know anything kind of this thing because I remember he once told me his close friends, all of them in prisons right now, he was very, very worrying about them, very sad about them. He was crying every day about their stories. So when you're in the Saudi consulate, when he goes in, and you're there in Istanbul, at that point in your life, he had been forced to make the painful choice to leave his wife and his family in Saudi. But he was going to the consulate to get proof 
that he was no longer married to his first wife in order to be able to marry you. I mean, he was working for the Washington Post. Were the two of you planning to stay in Turkey? What was your plan once you were married? Where were you going to live? He said to me, my relation with my country, with my government, is not that much bad that I have to worry about. He said to me that. He said, look, I have worked to my country more than 35 years or 40 years. I am a very well-known journalist. I am not criticizing Saudi. That's bad. I just advised them. I couldn't do that in Saudi Arabia. Now I am doing that in D.C. He believed that there is a good relation between him and Saudi. Because I am not Saudi. I am not living in Saudi Arabia. Right. You say that he didn't live in a general state of fear of what the Saudis would do to him. I guess it never crossed his mind that this was possible. The first visiting, me and him, we went 28 September before the second visiting. And he came out like 45 minutes or something like that. And he said to me, okay, it went very well. He was very happy. When he came out, he said they gave me coffee, tea, and asked about me, my marriage, and he they encouraged me. They asked me some questions, and we have chat. He said to me, I am really happy that I faced the very, very nice picture of my country that I was worrying about. He said to me that. And he also sent some messages to his friends and shared this, his happiness, it not just me. And yet when he enters the building, he hands you two cell phones and tells you if anything happens, you should contact Erdogan himself. No, it wasn't true. Actually, he told me, I don't want to go to consulate. I don't want to face this country. And I am outside of Saudi. And maybe they will question me. They will get me on pressure or some kind of this thing. I don't want to face it, but there is no way to get married with you. And I want you um, like my wife. He said to me, the Saudi consulate, they are asking the phones out of the consulate. I mean, out of the offices inside the consulate. And they are keeping them like in a box inside the consulate. And I don't trust in the situation. And, And I want... You keep them because lots of things in his phones and, you know, messages that he don't want to share with these people. And then he said, put this and he went in. He didn't tell me, call anyone or do some calls with any kind of people or something like that. I just said to him, don't worry, I'm here. If something happens. So when you went in in the first visit and you go in to answer some questions and everything seems normal, you know, everything seems like it's just functioning normally. They have, they've got a, a job to do and you're there to answer these questions. So when you go back the second time, the fateful time, when you go then, why didn't you go into the building with him then? Why did he want you to wait outside? The rules of the consulate, they did not allow to go inside with him. And then I started waiting. It went like one hour, it is okay. Two hours, yes, you can say okay. But after two hours, because it was a very simple conversation the first time, and he said to me, it was a very nice conversation. And I thought it might be like more conversation and questions. You know, the Arab people talks a lot. 
So I don't know. After two hours, I checked the time when the consulate closed. And it was like 3.40, something like that, or maybe 4. And of course, I was waiting in front of door. Jamal did not came and I was relaxed. And, and I felt did not can happen, you know? He's in there and hours go by. It's one thing to come out to him and say, oh, he's not in the building. He left. Someone took him, whatever. It's another thing for them to tell you exactly what happened. When did you find out exactly what happened to him? I called the consulate to explain myself. I am a Hatijas, Turkish citizen. I'm waiting out of door. Jamal did not come. Where is Jamal? And then he said, who you are? And then where are you right now? And then he came out and checked on me and told me there is no one inside. And I started worrying. It was a very huge scared inside me. I made calls with people, lots of people with a very worrying situation. And I also called with my friends to come to stay with me there because I felt there is something going on. And so the, the situation at that time, I learned from guy that came from Saudi consulate and then told me by saying there is no one inside the consulate. There is no Jamal. Jamal is not inside. He did not give me more information and he went back and then I, I start waiting there. So no Istanbul or Turkish police sat you down and said... They did not tell me. I asked many times during the investigations, because when police question you, they investigate me as well as a close person. So I asked them and I also asked the head of the court when they start the investigation and they said to me, we are searching still. We are trying to understand. They said to me, we still do some information are not clean or some kind of these responses that I received from the people. And also this gave me a kind of hope, you know, there wasn't any declaration or any clear message that I received from the official one. So I thought, okay, let's see, because, you know, it is a huge, like, nightmare or, or tragedy. You cannot believe. And I did not able to understand what's going on. I still, very big shock and another world that I was living in. I am not that person before Jamal. Hatija Jengiz. If you appreciate conversations with international activists, check out my episode with the director of the Crisis and Conflict Division at Human Rights Watch, Ida Sawyer. There are different kinds of chronic human rights abuses in different regions, but I think in, in countries where you have more authoritarian governments, where you don't have freedom of expression, freedom of the press, and there's crackdowns on political opposition leaders, journalists, activists, that's where we see some of the worst abuses. And that can sometimes be you know, related to abuses linked to access to healthcare, education, and those sorts of human rights as well. To hear more of my conversation with Ida Sawyer, go to heresthething.org. 
After the break, Khatija shares her reaction to seeing the tragedy of Jamal Khashoggi's death brought to life in The Dissident. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Martha Stewart, and we're back with a new season of my podcast. This season will be even more revealing and more personal, with more entrepreneurs, more trailblazers, more live events, more Martha, and more questions from you. I'm talking to my cosmetic dermatologist, Dr. Dan Belkin, about the secrets behind my skincare. Walter Isaacson, about the geniuses who changed the world. Encore Jane, about creating a billion-dollar startup. Dr. Elisa Pressman, about the five basic strategies to help parents raise good humans. Florence Fabricant, about the authenticity in the world of food writing. Be sure to tune in to season two of the Martha Stewart podcast. Listen and subscribe to the Martha Stewart podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Director Brian Fogel's film The Dissident directly implicates Mohammed bin Salman's involvement in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. It is perhaps one of the reasons the film struggled initially to find a buyer. I wanted to know how Khatija came to meet Brian Fogel. He reached me out at the time that we have learned from Saudi that Jamal has been killed. And it was a huge waves around the world. So it was a big and huge shock for everyone. And everyone also tried to reached me out to make an interview. One of them was Brian. He phoned me and he asked me to come to Istanbul to visit me. And he wants to make a film for Jamal. But after that phone call, Sean Penn, he has called me as well. And then he came before Brian, visited me in Istanbul. And then we met and we talked. He was a very, very touch with this story and he cried and I cried and we talked and it was a very unique time. 
And then Brian came and then he did not mention lots of things about the detail. And then I listened to Brian and I decided to with Brian because I listened to him very carefully and he said, look, this is my plan. And I will do that during the year and I will start that time and, and I will finish that time. And I have a film about the staff in Russia, the Icarus, and then I have watched also his film. And I said, look, it is something that it's serious. I have to make a decision between them. And also they collaborated. Yeah, they worked together to produce the film. Brian was professional for these details. Right. So it went very well. When you finally see the film, what was that like? What was your reaction? Oh, my reaction was very interesting that I cried a lot. I was in Italy. I watched it before Sundance because according to our agreement, there was a condition that I have to see before release. So I, I watched there. I didn't believe that all these things happened again and again. It was the first time to see myself with the the real tragedy. And then you are a part of this tragedy in reality, not in your mind or in my mind, in my heart. Now I'm seeing what happened to me, to Jamal, and I start to realize how a huge things happened and happening in my life, how I will deal with this, how I will start living like any normal person. And I start to realize that my life has changed 100% or more. Now, at the time of the event, at the time of his murder in the consulate, the film depicts certain police, detectives, what have you, whether they're in the city of Istanbul or they're national police figures in Turkey itself. Did you trust the Istanbul and the Turkish police authorities with the work that they did? Did you feel that they were genuinely trying to solve the case? Yes, they did. I think in this case, they did a great job because they were in a very big shock like me. I remember the time that questioning me to understand because no one knows about Jamal, by the way. In Turkey, the normal people in the country, they try to understand why did this happen in Turkey, in Istanbul. They try to understand what's going on. So his children eventually, at some point, inform the Saudi government through whatever channels that they don't want these people that were arrested, they want them pardoned and they don't want them to face the death penalty. What were your feelings about that? Were you disappointed? I understand. I try to understand more and more. It wasn't easy at the time that they, they made a decision. I decided to not make any comment. Why? Because uh, it is not my point that I fight with his family. I mean, Jamal's family, they are not my enemies. And they decided to forgive the criminals, in my opinion, not because they want. They forced the biggest challenges in their life and they made this decision for their life. I have to respect why? Because I am not Saudi. I am not living in Saudi Arabia. And also, they are Jamal's family. There is no point to fight with these people. Right. 
And if I meet them, I am sure I will become a very close friend of them. How many children does he have total? Four. Two sons, two daughters. Me and Jamal and Jamal's son went to cafe and lunch together, dinner together. I take them to the best restaurant in the Bosphorus. And we spend a very, very wonderful time together before he's killed. Hatija Jengis. If you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend. And be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Hatija Jengis shares who Jamal Khashoggi really was. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, forward limited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Martha Stewart, and we're back with a new season of my podcast. This season will be even more revealing and more personal, with more entrepreneurs, more trailblazers, more live events, more Martha, and more questions from you. I'm talking to my cosmetic dermatologist, Dr. Dan Belkin, about the secrets behind my skincare. Walter Isaacson, about the geniuses who change the world. Encore Jane, about creating a billion-dollar startup. Dr. Elisa Pressman, about the five basic strategies to help parents raise good humans. Florence Fabricant, about the authenticity in the world of food writing. Be sure to tune in to season two of the Martha Stewart podcast. Listen and subscribe to the Martha Stewart podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. After the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, then-President Trump went against his own intelligence community saying he believed Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was not involved in the killing. Recently, the Crown Prince was granted immunity as sitting head of government by the Biden administration, and Hatija's lawsuit against him was then dismissed. To date, Genghis has appeared before the UN, the European Parliament, and a tribunal at The Hague, calling for justice for her fiancé. I was curious if she felt these international organizations would continue the fight for accountability. Actually, at the beginning, they gave me some sort of hope 
by words. But at the moment, what I'm doing or what I'm planning to do is we are working on a progress that trying to understand from uh, jurisdiction, international jurisdiction, that which country that we can do something more. Trump, that time, was president. Right. And he has stayed with, with MBS directly without any accusing. And he, he ensured that he will not do any kind of movement against him. And he tried to defend him in a very interesting ways. So after this position, what I understand from the politics, if the United States did not sign that it will do something, and then the others follows them. So the United States has typically a leadership role among people in the international community, and they've abandoned that role now. In this case, yes, they did follow the United States very closely and very directly. And because of this, I start understand from the European Parliament and the United Nations, which I gave more than one time speech, and I ask more questions and investigation. They did not uh, take any sort of serious action after the report. Even the United Nations did not take any step against the criminals. So what would I do? In Turkey, they also have finished and closed the case and sent to Saudi Arabia. And the United States gave the criminals the immunity. So the plan is now that I have to carry on this mission and vision that keep Jamal Sney alive. So you haven't given up is what you're saying. You have not given up. I need to get the truth. I need it because still we don't know Jamal's body where. We still don't know why and what happened to him, why they killed Jamal. I thought The Dissident was a wonderful film and a a highly disturbing one. When you watch the film, he is the subject. And I was overcome, really, by how charming he was, how funny he was. He had this little wry little look on his face. He was an unusually bright and clever man. But when you watch the film, you kind of become very warm toward Khashoggi. You you really, really, he wins you over. In your mind, when you tell people, who was Jamal to you? In general, you cannot find easily a, a kind man. You can find rich man, you can find handsome man, you can find, you know, famous man, for example. Jamal was a very generous person. He was a kind and humble person, a good listener. And he understands women and how they think about men's and talking very few words, but meaning words. And try to understand from the behaves, not from the words that I was looking for. And Jamal was a man who understand from the eyes, from the feelings, from the hearts, and from the behind of words, and uh, behind your beauty and behind your feelings. He said the most important point in life is to understand someone who loves you. And he said, you I ever met in my life 
any person like you that you loved me very different from the any woman I met. So I understand him from inside, not from outside. I met Jamal as a man in reality, not as a journalist. You are talking about someone who lost everything. He left his country, he left his family, his children, his wives, his famousity, and, you know, started over and he, he is not happy with that. He made this decision because of the situation, but he found himself very lonely and very weak at the same time, but he cannot explain this part to people to understand him. So the situation was very unique. I can say that. One time he asked me, he was worrying about my future a little bit. And then he asked me many times, are you happy with me? Or are you scared? I said, it's okay because I want to live with you whenever I can or you can. I want to share with my life with you whenever you're alive in this life. He just touched my soul. And also at the same time, I touched his soul because... I did not get married with uh, someone famous. He wasn't famous with me. He wasn't that rich man with me. He was a very, very honest and open and humble and smiling person with someone like me. It was like the big present from God that you cannot expect it that much big. Because when he came, he covered the whole things that I lost in my life. Obviously. I don't want to use a cliche like the love story between the two of you. But as two people who meet each other under these circumstances, and you only knew him very briefly, you'd only knew him for a matter of months before the horrible event occurred, the other tragedy of this story is how you felt about each other and how you came together. That's a huge part of the story for me, is for a man who had to abandon his family, didn't want to do that, and found someone like you, you're obviously an incredibly bright, educated, engaged person, and the two of you come together, and then this terrible thing happens that's among the saddest parts of the story of all. Just a last word that I want to say. If you, someone asks me, what did you understand from your story? Or what did you face through this story that you face it in your life. I have achieved two things, the personal things and general things. The personal things the from Jamal, the first one that any person in the life they need is a safety. Jamal left his country because of safety. And without love, no one can leave. Jamal was needed the real love when he left his country. The safety, love, and faith. You have to have a faith or goal in this life. If it is from the personal side that we have to keep all these the three things in our life. Our safety, our loves, and our goals. I am grateful to you for doing this. I really, really am. Thank you. My thanks to human rights activists, Hatija Jengis. This episode was recorded at CDM Studios in New York City. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our social media manager is Danielle Gingrich. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing is brought to you by iHeart. 
Radio. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother Jonah. And we are so excited to have you hear the latest season of our nostalgia themed podcast, How Did We Get Weird? Not only do you get to know me and my brother, you get to know the stories that made us the absolutely rad people we are today. Like you, Jonah, who's a music person and also a mental health counselor. And you, Vanessa, who is an actress, comedian, and I think you even wrote a children's book. Wow. I sure did. Check out our episodes where we've welcomed hilarious guests like our friend Andy Samberg. That's it. That's really it. And Queen Casey Wilson. I really went cart before the horse. I said, I think I have an opportunity to interview Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> Oh As a high school student. Plus legendary sisters Amber Ruffin and Lacey Lamar. Top. You would pull the bag out and then we would eat okay. the eat all the leftover the leftover chocolate chips, which was a lot. Then you'd roll the oh, barrel up so to fun. up the hill. And then one of us would get inside the barrel and they'd push you down. And we've also had an amazing guest like Mike the Miz, Jason Isbell, Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker of Slater Kinney, and many more. And you do not want to miss out on our funny segments like Change.Dork. <laughs> Change.Dork. And congratulations, you played yourself. Congratulations, you played yourself. Listen to our podcast, How Did We Get Weird, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Chelsea Handler, and if you listen to my podcast, Dear Chelsea, you know that I love making space for women to share their stories. And that is why I'm excited to be part of Women Take the Mic, iHeartRadio's celebration of women who make music, influence change, and create culture. All month long, your favorite voices from talk radio, music, and podcasting will highlight the remarkable achievements made by women and discuss the most significant issues facing us today. Search Women Take the Mic to listen to a collection of International Women's Day episodes from iHeart's top podcasts, including Angela Yee's Lip Service, The Psychology of Your 20s, and Dear Chelsea. It is a great way to support women and discover your new favorite show. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash Women's Day for more and listen to Women Take the Mic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.